<laughs> forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I, I pray that never grows old or faint on your ears. Every time I hear it, I think it, I'm a little bit amazed. In fact, if you, go to, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus gives his disciples the Lord's Prayer, you know, you notice you read the context, right? So he, he gives them the prayer, our Father, and so on. And then in Matthew's account, right afterwards, he says, For if you do not forgive you know, your brother of their debts, do neither will your heavenly Father forgive. It's almost as though forgive us our debts is the only thing he had just said. And so it's in the, right in the middle of the prayer for a reason. It's, it's meant to kind of be the centerpiece that grabs our attention and brings us before God in repentance, knowing our need... <laughs> To, to be better at forgiving, to say the least. And so that's part of the reason, or, or along the same kind of reasoning, that we're in Psalm 51 this morning. That's where I would direct you to go. Many of you know, I, th- I think most of you all here know, that we've been in a series on the Psalms for the last couple of months. This will take us, I plan, through uh, Christmas and even into uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we'll be in the Psalms. I'm not going... So systematically through the Psalms that, you know, it's, it's not, we're not preaching every single one, all 150. That'd be a long Sunday morning when we get to 119. Um, but I am sort of um, selecting ones that I have found to be most helpful to me and, yes, to all the saints uh, throughout church history. And then as a kind of, uh, kind of tradition, what we've started doing is trying to sing some of these as well. Just just for fun and for the sake of clarity, just, I want to address something with you very briefly. There is a, uh, a theological perspective within church history. It still exists. It's alive and well today, held by some uh, very dear friends of mine. Most, uh, mostly this is held by, by Presbyterians of one stripe or another, and it's, it's called exclusive psalmody, which means you can only sing the psalms. So, so in, in churches that, uh, that abide by this and that confess this, you won't ever hear them singing any hymns or, or what we would call praise songs or things like this, only arrangements of the psalms. And the thinking there, as far as it goes, is basically God's given us these. We're not going to do any better. He's commanded us to sing them, so let's do it. Uh, and let's do only that. And uh, recently the questions come up with preaching on the Psalms and singing them, if that's a position that I hold to. And so I want to just very clearly, unequivocally say, no. (laughs) Okay? And that should be evidence enough in how our services are organized that we sing Psalms and other things as well. Uh, But I wanted to make very clear that I, I think that the Psalms are certainly lacking in our services for the last at least 50 years or so. And so uh, I think reclaiming them is an important part of spiritual warfare. And I think as we wonder at the, let's just say, uh, anemic weakness of our spiritual warfare of late, I just couldn't help but wonder, is it because we've forgotten the songs of Zion as part of the warfare, as part of the fight that we engage in, as part of the sturdiness and hope of our faith? Because there are some hopeful songs in there. And so my desire is not to go exclusively on these, but to not be without them either. And so this morning we will be uh, singing, uh, you'll be hearing me preach Psalm 51 and we'll sing it as well. Why don't we read it to start out with? In Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then... Will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. And again, together we say, thanks be to God. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms that we get pinpointed as to the historical origin. The heading of the psalm tells us that it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. What happened with Bathsheba is well known, but I am going to give you a summary of it before we proceed. It can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verses 2 and following. Essentially, it happens late one afternoon that when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about her, And someone told him that it was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he laid with her. What we can gather from there, from that brief summary of what you'll find in 2 Samuel 11, is that David knew very well what he was doing. This is what you might call a premeditated action. His culpability in the story is high. The text does not tell us the extent of Bathsheba's culpability if there was any. It would likely be too far to call this rape, but it would be silly not to acknowledge that it is something similar. Two chapters later in 2 Samuel 13, Absalom, David's son, rapes Tamar, his sister, and it is handled as rape. It would be quite reasonable then to think that 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 13 are related in that where a king takes liberty, sinful liberty, the princes will take even greater sinful liberty still. So Bathsheba becomes pregnant. She sends word to David. David tries to cover things up by bringing her husband Uriah home from battle so that he could lie with her and then later think it was his baby. Uriah was too noble to sleep with his wife while his comrades were dying. So David arranged to have him killed so that he could quickly marry Bathsheba and cover the sin that way. Specifically, he told the commander of the army to 
make sure that Uriah was right where the fighting was hottest and then have everyone back away and let the Amorites do his dirty work. So 2 Samuel 11.27, Bathsheba completes her time of mourning for her husband and then enters David's house. And in what has to be one of the most understated sentences of the Bible, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God sent the prophet Nathan to David to confront him with his sin. And probably because David is at the end of the day an autocrat, Nathan does so with a bit of care. He comes to him with a story about a rich man who steals a a lamb from a poor man. And uh, the poor man had treasured this lamb much in the same way that you might a pet, like a dog or a cat. And the rich man, even though he had hordes and hordes of sheep, he takes this one from the poor man and makes it his supper so he can feast with his friends. Nathan says, what do we do, David, with the sort of guy that does that sort of thing? And David says, we're going to kill him. (laughs) We're going to find him and make sure he pays. And Nathan, in one of the most famous moments in all of Bible history, says, you are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David breaks down and confesses, I have sinned. And again, the understatement is so jarring, I have sinned, David says, that a sort of, it's so jarring that a sort of splendor settles over it. You want to say, David, you have not just sinned, you have sinned spectacularly. You are an especially high-achieving sinner. You took a woman who was not your wife, tried to make her your wife just because you saw her and wanted her, And then when she becomes pregnant, you had her husband killed by isolating him in battle with the Amorites. And when he was dead, by the way, you told his wife, oh, the Amorites did this. And so perhaps it is that Psalm 51 fills in some of the contours of David's seemingly understated repentance. For we have in Psalm 51 what is probably the most famous psalm of repentance from the lips of a man in great sin. So then... I want to begin with this question. What is repentance? It's a Christian theology term, and it seems kind of like a hard question, but then it also seems like something that if you are a Christian, you, you sort of should just know how to do, right? It's like you don't, nobody gives you classes on how to breathe or how to make your heart beat. And so, with, so I mean, we, we tend to maybe assume, so it is with repentance. You just, I mean, if you're a Christian, of course, you kind of just know how to do that. It means saying you're sorry. Well, it is, it is more than that. I want to take you to our shorter catechism, actually, one of the greatest uh, definitions I think you can find. What is, what is repentance unto life? Here's what our catechism says. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. That means it comes from God. Where a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I would submit to you, that is Psalm 51 in a little little box for you. It It pretty much lays out the whole course of Psalm 51, which I hope to make clear to you in due course this morning. We have in this record of Psalm 51 an account of how a man is into the pit of despair by his own doing, and 
we have a picture of what repentance unto life is. In fact, David didn't just get out of the pit. He triumphed. He comes out stronger. He even comes out singing. How is that possible? It's possible because he repented. And if you say, when you hear me say that, you say, wow, okay, I have to be honest. Whenever I've repented, very often I feel worse. I feel more polluted, more dirty, weaker than when I started. I don't feel like you just described David feeling when he comes out of it. I mean, you just said David comes out singing for heaven's sake. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that there are plenty of Christians who only just barely know what repentance is. So let's talk about it a bit this morning. Repentance means at least five things that I'm going to walk through as as briskly as I can while touching on some important things for you today. It means crying out. That's That's where we start. It means seeing what God sees. It means being washed or cleansed by God. It means longing for correction to be set right or set on the right path. And it means looking up. Okay? Crying out, seeing what God sees, being washed, longing for correction, and looking up. So we're going to go through each one of these in turn. Repentance means crying out. David begins by crying out to God. Why don't we go there now? Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the cry. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Repentance begins with crying out to God, just as David is doing here. Now, crying out to God. By this, I do not mean reciting the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer that I just gave you. Though that's, you know, usually a good thing to do. I also, I don't even mean necessarily reciting Psalm 51 out loud, though that's an even better thing to do. Don't misunderstand me. By crying out to God, I mean finding a quiet place and speaking out loud, not in your head, but out loud to God and pleading for His help and asking that He help you see your sin as He sees it, that He bring you to Himself again, that He wash you, that He cleanse you, that He forgive you. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying, don't use your knowledge of God or even your knowledge of Scripture to turn repentance into an intellectual, a merely intellectual exercise of apply Bible passage A to sin B for result C. You must begin by crying out to God which for most of us requires a radical getting over ourselves. Sorry, I said rattle. It's that baby brain. Baby's coming. So rattle came out. I meant radical. David begins with his need and he cries out to God. God, I need your mercy. God, I need you to wash and cleanse me. So it begins with crying out to God. Second, it means seeing what God sees, namely the seriousness of our sin. We know that David thinks it's serious. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, And my sin is ever before me. How do I know that David is taking this seriously? Because he can't get it out of his head. I know my transgression and my sin is ever, always, right in front of my face. It's it's chasing on it. It's chasing him. It's, It's terrifying him. It's causing him to be disgusted with himself. So, 
what David says here, though, is he says, I know my transgression and my sin. And what he's saying is that he recognizes his sin according to God's definition. So not, not this is evil according to my mom and dad. Not this is evil according to my culture. Not this is evil according to my friend. But this is evil according to what God has said. And you can hear the guilt here, can't you? Now, I have to be honest with you. When we experience guilt today, a lot of times the modern therapeutic answer is, we'll stop feeling that way. Right? Maybe not directly. But, but David's answer is not, well, I feel guilty and that feeling is really going to cause some negative emotion, so I need to avoid it. David's answer is just to take this to God, to start there and to be honest about it. And so, if someone ever says to you about a sin you've committed, you shouldn't feel guilty about that, or at least they imply it, just remember, that's not a science speaking, that's a, that's a kind of religion speaking, telling you what to do with your guilt. Very often, if guilt is discovered in sort of modern parlance and conversations, what we simply try to do is remove it. Well, don't, don't feel guilty. Don't feel that way. That is not what people of the Bible do. The first question is not, how do I get rid of this feeling of guilt? It's really obnoxious. The first question is, am I guilty? Right? Do I have a good reason to be feeling this way? I mean, and actual guilt and feelings of guilt can be different things there, but just for our, our sake, I'm trying to, to bring them together to show you that if guilty feelings come, the first question's got to be, am I guilty? Well, that depends. By what standard? You have to know the standard. What is right and wrong? Don't forget that in verse 8, David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He sees his sorrow over his sin as God's doing, not as something that's just welled up within himself or at least by himself, that he has to get rid of. Now the shame is real that goes with the guilt. That's why verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Take this away. Make it go away. Here's my point. You have to go to God's Word to know what God has said about your sin. From there, you can answer the question of whether or not you're guilty. If you don't know where to go, I'd say start with the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus 20. Then maybe jump over to Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's going to be a great starting place for you if you have no idea where else to go. Because sometimes I feel like I say, well, you know, God's standard is in the Word. Well, it's kind of a big book, Rhodes. I don't know if you noticed. Yeah, so Exodus 20 would be a good place to start. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, also a, a good place to diagnose your sin. In our, in our kitchen, Marissa and I have this kitchen scale that can weigh out amounts of food or liquid or whatever. And one of the interesting features is that if you put like a, a two-pound bowl on it and turn it on, it jumps to zero. Okay? Now stick with me. There's two pounds on the scale, but, but the, the readout says zero because that's where the, you're, uh, you're programming it to start. And that's because you're going to put things in the bowl. That's the stuff you want weighed. But take the bowl off. Take everything off. And now, even though there's nothing on the scale, it's all wacky. It's reading negative two pounds. And anything you try to measure out is going to be way off because it needs to be recalibrated. It needs to be reset to the correct settings in order to properly read what's going on. Okay? Here's my point. 
your conscience often functions like that. Your conscience, over time, what can happen to your conscience is it gets, the, the, Paul's word in the New Testament is seared. We might also say it, it becomes accustomed to certain kinds of sin. Your, your conscience can adjust to 20 pounds of sin and guilt on the scale, so to speak, and your heart doesn't even feel it because you're just used to the weight. It's a very real danger for your conscience. This is why Jiminy Cricket is, I think, mostly wrong when he says, uh, he says, only let your conscience be your guide. That's wrong. Let your conscience be your guide when your conscience is functioning properly. That's good. Tim Keller helpfully observes that most serial killers are certainly letting their consciences be their guide. But their conscience has 300 pounds of sin on it, and the scale still reads zero. Okay? You can only recalibrate your conscience by going to the law of God and seeing what God has said. Going to it and seeing what God calls right and wrong. And for the Christian, for the one who's been given a new heart, that doesn't mean you always have right feelings about right and wrong. So, so yes, God's law is written on your heart. That doesn't mean every impulse you have is now right. But it does mean that when you go to the Word and you find what God says, and, uh, says yes to and what God says no to, you read it and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you say yes and amen. You see what God sees. Note also that David sees his sin rightly as God sees it because he understands who he's offended. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Stop. That catches us a bit off guard, is it not? You almost want to say, really, David? <laughs> I suspect Uriah might have some objections. But what David is saying here is that he properly feels the weight of his sin against the Holy One. To the point where you might hear him saying something like this, Sure, I did wrong to those others, but I sinned against you. And I'm, again, I'm not saying you can't sin against your neighbors. Certainly you can. Certainly David did. I'm saying if that helps you see the, the, the difference in, in, in size and velocity of what we're talking about. By comparison, the weight of my evil is so much more scandalizing before God Almighty. Now this is really important. I'm not telling you that when you've sinned against another person, you should downplay the sin against them. I'm saying rather you should, if I can make up a word, upplay the sin against God. Here's why that's important. Because if you see your sin against God as small or relatively meh, and your sin against people as great and scandalous, you will always languish in unforgiveness. Because people often forgive imperfectly. Okay? So if another fallible human being is the measure, is, is the sort of beginning and end of your forgiveness, they might forgive you imperfectly and you never really know for sure, do you? And so if they're the, 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 the large and, and most important measure, then you will never be, you'll never be able to, to rest in the forgiveness. Not like the forgiveness that God gives. David knows that the greater weight is against the Holy One. So much so that he is consumed with this vision of offense against God. And he says, this is first about you and me. 
And this is first between you and me before it's about anybody else. Which is what your sin always is, by the way. It is always a loving of something more than God. A thing you did because you wanted to. And had to discard love of God in the process. However briefly. Look at what else he says. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Quick question I want you to consider. What is the difference between confession and repentance? They're related, but there is a distinction. Repentance literally means to turn around. And you might remember from our uh, shorter catechism reading, that was in the language, a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. Confession, though, this is so cool. Wait till you hear this. Confession, the Greek word that we translate confession in the New Testament, is homo logeo. It's a compound word. So the, the prefix homo means same, and logeo is from logos, where we get word. Okay? So confession literally means same word in, in Greek. So repentance is not only seeing what God sees, it also brings with it confession, saying what God says saying the same thing that God says. So when we confess our faith together, as we'll do before we come to the table, what are we doing? We are saying the same thing about God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit and about our life together that God says. When we confess our sins together, corporately as we just did a few moments ago, we are saying the same thing about our sins that God says about them. And so the importance of confession together with repentance, the turning, the, the turning from sin into Christ, cannot be overstated. We must, when we seek repentance, confess, that is, say the same thing about our sin that God does. Does that make That's so important. I just want to ask the question, does that make sense? Because if not, beloved, I'll go over it again. I really want you to get this. All right, I got a yes and amen. I'm going to keep going. David in verses 5 and 6. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, he doesn't mean that sex is sinful or that conception and childbirth is sinful. He means that he's been sinful from day one. And that by contrast, verse 6, God is the one who desires truth. You delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart all the way down to the roots of who I am. What you should notice is that earlier in verses 3 through 6, David is taking, I mean, right down to, yeah, where we are right now, verse 6, sorry. So, so as far as we've gone, David is taking total ownership of his sin. It belongs to him. He's been a sinner from day one. That's not an excuse. If anything, it makes things worse. David is seeing what God sees about his sin and saying what God says about his sin. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So this was, a, this was a branch that was used by the priest to sprinkle blood on a house that had a disease in it to declare it clean. It was also what was used to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts at Passover. David is crying out to God as his ultimate priest that he would forgive him and count him clean from his sin. You see the wretchedness of David's spirit here, verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Sometimes people look at Psalm 51 and they say, well, look, David went to God and confessed his sins and he was all right. So that means 
I don't need to confess my sin ever to anybody else, any other human. I just need to go to God. And I would say to that, go read the rest of David's story because by the time it was over, all of Israel knew what had happened. The psalm does not make a case for keeping all your sins secret except from God. The psalm rather says, go to God first and then deal with your fellow men. But the forgiveness of God is the whole basis of our asking. The reason we come to God asking for forgiveness is because, I mean, don't, don't you know it already? The reason you come to God asking for forgiveness is because you're already confident of His yes. This is part of why baptism is so important for the Christian. Baptism is where God says, do you want to see with your eyes? Do you want to see what I have promised to be for you? Here it is. The one who washes you. The one who washes your sins away. And in your great need of, in your hour of great need or your hour of great shame and guilt, you should always remember, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. I've been washed. That's who my God is. He forgives all those who repent of their sin and flee to his mercy. He washes them. That's who my God is. He keeps on forgiving. He keeps on washing. He keeps on bringing cleansing. So first David looks helplessly to the mercy of God. And second, he prays that in this mercy, God would forgive him and make him clean. So part of repentance is the acknowledgement, of course, that you've made yourself filthy and you need to be cleaned. That doesn't, by the way, mean you need to be rebaptized. It means you need to bank on the very promises that God put on you when he baptized you. So many times, I think what people look to instead of repentance is categorization. Here's what I mean. I raged and yelled at my husband. I raged and yelled at my wife. I guess I'm just a hot-headed and angry person. I failed again by giving in to my lust and committing adultery with my eyes. I must have an addictive personality. I overreacted to what somebody has said. I must just be a really emotional person. Listen, you don't need to be categorized, beloved. You need to be cleansed. Do you notice that the only self-descriptions David gives in Psalm 51 are descriptions of his need for mercy and descriptions of the reality of his sin? At no point does David say, I am a man overcome by lustful and murderous thoughts. Though he was. (laughs) But his self-diagnosis is not that. His self-diagnosis is, I sinned because I wanted to. And I need to be cleansed. Next point. Repentance means longing for new life. We're going to verse 10. Repentance means longing for new life. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We're going to come back to this. I think the next one is the the quotation, I believe. Yeah, this is from John Piper. He says, forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. Just let that kind of land on you for a moment. The adulterer, the murderer, the liar, the child molester hate what they were and set their faces like flint to be changed by God. Just out of curiosity, I mean, just think on this with me for a moment. Because when I first read that, I thought, huh, I don't recall a Bible passage that names those four sins just like that. Why did he go with them? 
I'm going to, I, 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 haven't, I haven't asked John, I don't have his phone number, I haven't called him up to double check with him, but I, I would reckon, I'd wager with you, it's because these four sins, when they are examined by our culture, tend to be hopeless. Let me read them again. Once you're there, you are beyond hope. And I would submit to you that if you want to understand a first century sort of grip of those things, just add the word tax collector in there. And these are the ones God rescues. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. What does that mean? Well, first consider David's role as king, because that's important. God had poured out His Holy Spirit on David, anointed him as king, and so very likely, more than a few commentators have pointed out, that what David is is saying here essentially is, don't take my kingship and my kingdom away. Don't take the promises, the covenant promises away that you've put on me. And so that leads some people to say, well, Christians really shouldn't pray this or sing this then. Well, I mean, you know, because we have the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit right until the day of redemption. And so if we have the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to lose the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be talking like this. It seems to threaten perseverance of the saints, after all. So let me address that briefly. Because as you already probably know, you're like, well, didn't we just sing it in the Keith Green song? Yeah, we did. And we're going we're gonna to sing it again. So you already know where I stand on that. I believe in perseverance of the saints. But perseverance of the saints is not, I had a religious experience once, so that means I never again have to ask any questions about my security before God ever, ever, ever. Perseverance of the saints means that God will not ever, ever allow any one of His elect children to perish and go to hell. Having established that, the Apostle Paul is not afraid to, uh, excuse me, the Apostle Peter is not afraid to say, make your calling and election sure. Okay. How do I do that? Good news, by faith alone. By hearing the promises of Jesus and resting in them and then taking your responses to all of them very seriously by fighting with all your might to see your sin destroyed and the kingdom of God advanced. Perseverance means, beloved, you never have to worry about God misplacing you. Perseverance means that God Himself will give you all the faith you need to keep going today and tomorrow. So rejoice in that. Perseverance means that Jesus Christ on the cross purchased not only the forgiveness of your sins, but also the faith you're going to need tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. to keep on fighting. But perseverance does not mean that you should never ask yourself if your faith in Christ is real. Because there are accounts in the Old and the New Testament of people who have some form of faith but end up falling away from it or denying it or rejecting it or departing from it. Scripture for this reason calls us to ask, are we sure of our calling and election? Am I a Christian? Am I? Now, if you ask it every day, it will destroy you. Okay? If you ask it every day, Always wondering, always wondering, always unsteady, always uncertain. That will destroy you. Because you'll look inside yourself, and funny thing, you won't see Jesus. You'll see despair and you'll see your sin. And you'll forget that faith is built not by looking inside yourself for Jesus like he's where's Waldo, but by looking outside of yourself to Jesus in his word and at his table. That's where you find him. 
If you just keep looking inside yourself for him every day, that'll destroy you. But if you haven't asked in five years, something else could be destroying you, your own spiritual apathy and carelessness. David sees the horror of his sin, and he says, don't let me die like this. Don't let this be the end of my story. Don't let this be the proof of all that I am or have ever been. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, don't leave me. And so for us today, we should pray, Lord, let not my heart grow cold. Because if my heart gets cold and careless in my sin, I reveal more and more day by day that perhaps I am not a Christian at all, but am simply a liar, lying to myself and those around me. That's why David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what I need. And and so if he's asking, that must mean he knows it's a gift from God. It is God that gives you a willing spirit because, listen, the loss of our joy is almost always what's at the root of our sin. Restore to me the joy of my salvation because I lost it. How do I know? Well, look at what I did. And so... The last point, repentance then means looking up. Let's go to verse 13. Repentance means looking up. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Seems a little bold, doesn't it? We're hardly out of the, I mean, we're hardly out of the tunnel yet. And here David is saying he's going to be a teacher. David describes his own future as a forgiven man. He says, I'm going to teach sinners God's ways, and those sinners, oh man, those sinners are going to return to God. Sinners will return to you. Where does he get off talking like that? Verse 14, he will, when he's delivered, he will sing. I'm going to go from sinning to singing. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He will only do this, though, and this is important, if God acts first. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. By the way, just as an aside, this verse in, uh, in the Anglican tradition has started off all of their morning prayers. So when they, when they start, when they, often, I don't know if always it's true, but often when they gather together for morning prayer, they begin with, O Lord, open our lips, and our mouth will declare your praise. It's a good thing to pray in the morning if you're sitting down to do your devotional or, or, or whatever, to, to read your Bible and maybe to sing. That's, that's a good place to start. Lord, uh, as, the, as the coffee is opening up my eyes, so Lord, open up my lips uh, that I may sing your praise. David understands that God writes stories of redemption and that sinners have a future. For some of you, that's really hard to believe. Because you're like, some of you are in like a sealed chamber with verse 3. Do you remember verse 3? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And you haven't made it out of that cave. God calls you to receive His forgiveness and to lift up your head and say, Amen. Not to lift up your head and say, not yet, Lord, I'm not done with my mope fest. Now listen, there is a time for repentant grief. It's all over the psalm. Some of you have never really grieved over your sins, so pastorally, I'm trying to address both sides of this coin this morning, but there is such a thing as the kind of self-pitying, I'm not finished beating myself up yet. I'm not done crucifying myself for my sin. I'm not done earning my way back to God. 
so that then I can be a forgiven man. Wait, that makes no sense. So here's my, here's my kind of one-liner reminder to you this morning. Radical cynicism about what God means to do in you and with you is not a spiritual gift. Radical cynicism about what God means to do in you and with you is not a spiritual gift. Some of you mistake humility for radical cynicism about what God might do in you and with you. It's like, <coughs> it's, it's like grief. It's like when a loved one passes away, someone very close to you, someone really dear to you, like a mother or a father or a sibling or a best friend, and the only thing you can think to do is shut yourself behind a door and mourn and grieve. And that is a perfectly healthy response. For a while. That's no secret to any of you. You instinctively know that there's grief and then there's unending, debilitating, isolated depression. This is also true with sin and, and shame uh, over it. We, we talked about that, uh, I think, last Sunday and the Sunday before. There's a time to mourn. But don't pray, God cleanse me from my sin, if you mean to pretend that you have not been cleansed from sin for the next three years. Radical cynicism about what God means to do with you is not a spiritual gift. I mean, David has the boldness to say, when you put me back together, I'm going to go help others. And furthermore, endless dreary pity parties are better left to those who don't know God. Endless dreary pity parties are better left to those who don't know God. Because that's not about humility or repentance or about conviction or holiness. Those things are about you, keeping the spotlight on you, dwelling on you. David is praying, Lord, take this terrible sin, terrible as it is, and cleanse me from it, and then do something glorious with a man made clean. You might remember a few months back in a sermon, I quoted a portion of The Great Divorce from C.S. Lewis where an angel is in, in the heavenly places is asking a man if he can kill his sin, symbolized by a little lizard on the guy's shoulder. And the angel keeps asking, can I kill it? Can I kill it? Can I kill it? Will you let me kill it? And the man is terrified at the thought of parting with his sin. He says, you know, if you, if you kill it, I'll probably die with it. What happens instead is that when the lizard is killed by the burning flame of intense heat, that the ashes fall from his shoulder, and then the ashes rise up and they become a stallion, and the man literally rides off into glory. Yeah. And more than a few times in history, God has taken the fiery darts of the enemy, plucked them out of his sinful, rebellious children, and reforged them into mighty swords in order to say, here, go fight with this now. Let other sinners hear the stories of what God does with overachieving sinners. Amen? He makes them pictures of of what a mighty God can do with a repentant heart. That does not mean, and this is really important, that does not mean that all the, all the revelations or insights you might gain in the midst of sin and suffering are right. In fact, sometimes in the dark moments and in the really difficult valleys, we can flee to the wisdom of the flesh and the wisdom of man. And if we feel like that's what helps us climb up out of the pit, we will preach that with all our hearts, even if the Scriptures contradict it. That which saves your life will always earn your worship. So you want to always be taking what you gain back to the Word of God and saying, okay, I know this helped me. Does that mean it's from God? 
Okay? If it contradicts His Word, or if it just makes it seem like His Word misses the mark, then it isn't really for all people. And it's got to go. is isn't really for His people. If your insight renders God's Word insufficient for His people, you have to own that one is wrong. You know, I mean... Well, yes, God's Word tells children to honor their parents, but some children have really harsh parents, and so for them, that part of God's Word is an exception. No, you don't get to decide when to mute God. It might be that certain circumstances call for patience as someone struggles to come to grips with how to obey God in a unique set of hard circumstances. That's fair enough. But obedience to God is never rendered optional by our circumstances. We don't get to claim to be special cases and on the basis of that authority discard the Bible passages that threaten us. Okay? Let me return to the point. David gives us two things in verses 16 and 17 that we all need to hear. Two things and then I'm done. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Repentance is not a matter of working your way back to God. God does not call you to perform a specific list of duties and then you can get your forgiveness. You know what God commands. He doesn't keep it a secret. But a scorecard is not the means of your restoration. He calls you to surrender yourself. In fact, the only way to make the offense of a sin exponentially worse is to refuse to let your heart break over it. Okay? To refuse to let your heart break over it. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to tie this up. Repentance means crying out. And let us do this together. Because, by the way, the last verse at the end of 51, the last two verses, uh, speaks of the peace of Zion and the building up of the walls of Jerusalem. Where did that come from? What that should remind you is that there's no such thing as private sin. I'm sorry to inform you, my sin affects you and your sin affects me. I don't care if you can classify it as doesn't hurt others. All you mean is it doesn't hurt others, obviously. There is no sin that is truly private. All sin is a threat against the walls of a home and a church and a city. Jesus has already sealed to you, though, the ending of this story. He has already shown you the last page of the story and how these prayers of repentance end. Because of the shed blood of Jesus, they end, they end in the words, rise up and walk. And so that is our great hope. We are going to sing Psalm 51. It's, it's one that you're very familiar with. We've sang it before. Um, it, was kinda, it, was, it was retuned or whatever by RUF some time ago. Uh, that's the version that we sing. Uh, but it, the, the words come right out of the Scottish Psalter, same place we got Psalm 130 from last Sunday. And so we're going to sing uh, most of Psalm 51 uh, right now together. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this psalm, for the way that it leads, it leads us not only to repentance, but through repentance. And so I pray indeed that these words would be on our lips and that you would grant it to us to live as forgiven people. In Jesus' name, amen.